Well, well, well. Welcome to episode two of the Kindness Rebellion. In this episode, I had the amazing opportunity to speak to Ray Duckworth, the chairperson of the Utah Black Lives Matter chapter. And uh, man, this was a really, really good conversation. I think that there's a lot of anxiety when it comes to talking about race and race relations. Um, even if you are if you, even if you consider yourself an ally, as I do, um, there is so much that we have. There's so much that we have to learn. There is so much that we have to be better about. And um, and I think Ray gave a lot of good tips and um, ways to understand the movement in uh, very tactful and um, effective ways. It's um, not as it's not about just you know posting a black square or just um, you know going to rallies is great going into protests is great but there's more that we can do and there's more that we should do and um, she does a great job of outlining all of the ways that we can really be effective and create solidarity together to make real lasting change so thank you for listening to this episode and without further ado let's jump right in um, make sure to like share and subscribe comment let us know what you think thanks This is a podcast about rejecting tyranny and oppression by cultivating both systemic and individual change. I believe the only way to create this kind of monumental change is to inspire understanding, love, and kindness. From there, we can work to embody these essential values in our cultural systems and in our individual lives. My hope is that by effectively communicating with anyone and everyone, we can establish a shared vision for humanity and explore new ways of living to build a better world for all of us. I'm your host, Nathan Jones, and this is The Kindness Rebellion. Ray, thank you so much for coming on to The Kindness Rebellion. It is uh, it is an awesome opportunity for me to uh, kind of get to know you a little bit better and uh, get to know the uh, Black Lives Matter, especially the Utah chapter movement, um, a lot more intimately. You know, like uh, I think one of the things that I really want to cover a lot today is just how the public perceives Black Lives Matter versus like what's like what the organization is actually doing, what they actually value and strive for. Because um, I mean, as you probably know very, very well. <laughs> There's a lot of bullshit surrounding like how the public views Black Lives Matter and and what they actually stand for. You know, people trying to label it as a terrorist organization or other crazy shit like that, right? Um, and uh, and I just wanted to reiterate that uh, this is really an awesome opportunity and I truly appreciate uh, your time and uh, getting to kind of meet you at the various, you know, activist groups that we've been uh, going to, uh, especially I've uh, just started kind of focusing more on activism and um, already trying to get to know more and more people. And it's, it's great to get to know you a little bit. So thanks for coming on. For sure. Awesome. For well, sure. Uh, thanks. So how about we get started by kind of uh, letting you introduce yourself a little bit, just giving us some background about um, your own experiences and um, kind of also how you ended up uh, as the head of the Utah chapter for Black Lives Matter. Okay, so um, my name is Ray Duckworth, um, and I'm the operating chairperson for Black Lives Matter Utah chapter. Um, And I joined the chapter in 2019. So um, Lex Scott is the founder, and she was doing a presentation in February of 2019. And um, that's when I, I got to learn about this sense of community that she was structuring and creating and, you know, like, it it was really cool to listen to her talk about all of these really cool things that, you know, she was working on and the chapter was working on, um, and the kids camp. And, 
Uh, and then unfortunately in uh, September of that same year, uh, we were calling her cause we needed her help because uh, Bobby was killed by a cop. Mm. Um, so my cousin is Bobby Ray Duckworth and he was experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, he went to, he was living in a rural area in Utah and, or everybody knows everybody. He was going for a walk. He was very upset um, his partner at the time had called the police and said that he needed she that she feared for him hurting himself but not others. And um, he went for a walk and he complied with the responding officer, which is Garrett Safely. And Garrett Safely shot him about six or seven times and and ended his life. And um, it was all during a mental health crisis. So it's not necessarily what we need when we're experiencing mental health crises. Um, we need to be meeting one another with compassion, a uh, bare minimum, a hug. Right. <laughs> so, um, that whole, uh, obstacle and trial, that life altering event for my family, um, kind of made me really s- s- participate. Cause I, mm. I wanted, uh, better things. Um, I have a child, so I want better things for my child's future. Um, I, and my child had a, a friendship with Bobby. Bobby is like a, a big giant bear. He'd come over and, uh, my daughter would just wrap him around her little finger. And <laughs> there, it was just, it was very innocent and very lovely that mm. she had that cousin experience before he was taken from us. So, um, now I am the operating chairperson and that has been a lot of fun. Um, I love the communities I've been able to meet. Um, a lot of that sense of community was after losing somebody to police violence. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I think it's extremely important to amplify families of police brutality and police Mm -hmm. violence. Um, because these experiences um, change people's lives, and um, it—we uh, don't have like a rule book for how to grieve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a rule book on how to live, to be honest, right? So we don't really know what we're doing. Um, so I think it's like that sense of understanding is that in 2019, I was able to meet people who who we were all understanding that we didn't really know what we were doing, but we knew that we were grieving and we were trying mm-hmm. to survive and we were trying to live all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it was just that kind of experience. And so now that's, that's just where I am now. Wow. <laughs> so now we, uh, I'm also part of the board of the Utah Black History Museum uh, Bobby's name is on the back of the museum's bus um, as part of the exhibit. Um, we have national victims of police brutality and violence, and then we also have Utahs because we want to let people know that it's like an actually an extreme issue here and an extreme problem mm. that's targeting our marginalized communities and our spaces. So um, it's kind of just now I'm here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you here, even <laughs> though it obviously happened under such terrible circumstances that, um, man, for, for like, I mean, at least myself personally, like I just didn't understand the scope of the problem really until George Floyd. Right. And, and that's kind of when, um, at least from my perspective, Black Lives Matter was really launched into the spotlight, even though this has been happening for so much longer and it continues to happen to this day. Um, and I'm so, I'm so sorry to hear 
that that happened. And uh, and I'm honestly, I think from previous discussions, um, it sounds like there still hasn't been any real justice um, for Bobby ha- has there. Uh, no. So uh, like most cases that occur in Utah, um, the actions of officers are usually justified. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you look at the the whole picture, um, the officers who kill people experiencing mental health crises are, are violating their constitutional rights of mm-hmm of existing and it, and it's super crucial that we pay attention to that. Um, because a, a lot of people want to have that relied trust of, Oh, you know, our justice system is, is going to prevail. And those officers, you know, they did not act humanely and they're going to be punished, but like that, that doesn't really ever happen. No. And so I think, um, I think that's what the death of George Floyd kind of proved too, was that um, our justice system, um, if we can hold police accountable, right? We can. Mm -hmm. It's just whether we're choosing to, and it's not we as in you and I, or me and my neighbors, it's not that. It's like who we're putting into these elected positions Mm -hmm. that if they're supportive of holding even police officers accountable or not. So it's, it's, it's very crucial to pay attention. Um, it's especially living in, in Salt Lake, really, it's, it's just very important because, um, you know, outside looking in, we are discussing, uh, Breonna Taylor, right. And, mm-hmm. uh, Breonna Taylor, she was, you know, unalived in her own home in her own safety mm-hmm. of her home. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we live in Utah and this is considered like a cowboy country because everybody has a rifle. Like everybody has a cowboy hat and a gun around here. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that Breonna Taylor story, like that's a, that's an experience that actually could happen here. Um, she legally owned guns. She was within her means in the safety of her home and the police wrongly raided her apartment. And we can show that it was corrupt all the way up to the top. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we're not also paying attention to is like, we understand that that's what's happening, but outside of that, they are attacking that neighborhood. So Mm. they're utilizing the police and their forces to gentrify a neighborhood because Mm. now that building where she was killed is like, now it's going through a whole gentrifying process. Right. So Mm. it's like, yeah, this really tragic thing happened, but the bleed out from that very tragic thing is like now gentrifying. Like they're Mm. trying to gentrify this neighborhood and that happens in Salt Lake. Um, everywhere that a victim of police brutality in Salt Lake has died. Um, the heavy police, um, presence is to support gentrifying that part of the neighborhood. So I think it's just very important to pay attention, like how these, all of these arms are connected to each other. Yeah. That's, that's insane to hear that not only can they just like inflict so much violence and pain on, on a community in this area and then continue to perpetuate that without ever being held accountable. That's, it's absolutely disgusting to hear. And, and I think, um, you know, honestly, I've, I've heard like, sometimes when I tell people like, oh yeah, I've got a podcast with uh, Ray of Black Lives Matter. They're like, why did, why does you, Utah even have Black Lives Matter kind of thing. Like I've literally been asked that. And it's like, oh my God, it's Black Lives Matter, motherfuckers. Like that's why. And so I'm kind of curious to hear like how your experience with Utah explicitly has been. Like, have you had a lot of like 
um, uphill battles, I mean, more than, you know, is kind of anticipated already in, you know, white supremacist America. But like, is Utah itself a lot harder to kind of operate within um, from your experience? Um, I don't, I can't really say if it's hard versus easy, because I, I wouldn't know in, in a different space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say, you know, living and growing up and experiencing the, the black life in Utah, mm-hmm. um, it, it's an obstacle. And so um, Lex actually shared something on the internet the other day that it was a quote, and it was talking about, um, if you're if you're my accomplice, then you better be standing close enough to also get hit by the stones being thrown. Mm. Um, I think that that's something um, that is kind of reflective of Utah is mm. because like, I'm a, like a black queer person. Um, I'm a single parent. So like I, I'm, I have these intersections of my identity. Um, and sometimes it does feel like I'm the only one that's getting hit with those stones in some of the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, in like that same reverse of that same, uh, scenario, right. When I'm in a space and I can feel that I'm not the only person getting hit by those stones, but like my accomplices are, or people of my same intersecting communities, like I can feel it. And so it's, um, you can feel like the power of the people when you are mm-hmm. like organizing in Utah, especially Salt Lake. Um, mm-hmm. You can feel it because it, it just like everything starts to shift a little bit. But yeah, mm-hmm. like like it does get the obstacles do exist. Like when you are in a space and you do feel, oh, man, I'm really the only person like taking these stones in this moment. Right. I can I can mm-hmm. tell when that's happening. Um but in the same sense, like I am blessed to have been in a space and not only felt those stones, but felt others like in solidarity with me while we're getting those stones thrown at us. Mm, okay. that That's heartening to hear. And I, that's also great, um, I guess, uh, like advice, I guess, for, you know, people like me who really aren't targeted by any of this uh, injustice. We just kind of are, you know, witnessing it and trying to be like, oh, how can we help? I, I think that that's... Um, a very uh, activating uh, phrase for me, at least. It's like, got to stand close enough to get hit with the stones too. Um, Cause I think it's really easy to try and just be like, Oh yeah, I'll cheer you on from the sidelines just so I feel good about myself. And, uh, and obviously that's not enough for um, actually Absolutely. helping these communities who are trying to make real change. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I maybe also even kind of, tweak, maybe mm-hmm. even tweak that, how, how, yeah. how you're thinking too, of that. Um, you're not necessarily a target of the injustices because you are, um, mm. as long as a body is able to have their constitutional rights violated, that can mm. go for anybody. And oh. like, when we, when we talk about like the mural space in Salt Lake, mm-hmm. like when you walk around that space, like, I look like some of those people, you look like some of those people. And so it, it really points out that there's like an, an intersectionality to even who is being abused. Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's actually, um, that's actually really important because, um, I, I love the idea that like, if any one of us is getting hurt, if any one of us is getting disrespected or unhoused or abused, um, and violated in any way by the state, it's affecting all of us. Um, I I actually went and visited that mural yesterday after the CAG meeting. And, um, and there was, uh, there was one part of, um, 
oh god fuck me i forgot the name of the the person who i was um looking at their mural and um right next to it it just says we are all related and and that like that kind of got me and that was dylan um, taylor. thank you dylan taylor yeah perfect yeah that was um that that one really really hit me just because like it, it really speaks to exactly what you're saying like may, maybe i'm not you know a part of these like, marginalized groups, but because I'm a part of a community and a species that is being attacked by the state, by by um, the police, um, I am also being attacked. And, and I think that's where, you know, um, more people need to understand that and be able to stand up. So, so thank you. Thank you very much for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, and I guess one thing that I'd love to understand a little bit more is like, what are the current um, barriers to uh, achieving justice for for these situations, I, I know you um, you were telling me about a case just yesterday uh, where they just got body cam footage from they they murdered him like what th three years ago. Um, yeah, can you tell right. little, I don't know if he I, died you? though. I know that he was oh, oh, okay. uh, brutalized, and so I don't I don't mm. have confirmation that he was actually killed. Um, it's oh, okay. and so that's that's what makes it is is makes it even more uh, like us witnessing irresponsibility is because in 2019, this black man was assaulted by officers during a detainment, during an arresting, right? Um, and so if he's in jail and it's taken almost four years for them to get the body cam footage to support his case or his mm -hmm. claims, um, what that is, is it's giving the police that window to point at the department for grammar requesting. And it's not really pointing at the police that they they didn't handle this process correctly. Like and so really? so now they're and um we also have to respect time, right? Because um there is a statute of limitations with the time. And so we can see that that irresponsibility was to ensure that this person didn't have that timing. So wow. that's that's why it was important to bring up uh, that person's case. So are you saying that essentially um, because it like it wasn't necessarily it like the person didn't die, um, they were able to draw out the case as a result of just kind of the the context or the um, sort of the uh, the terminology about the case. And now the statute of limitations on prosecuting the officers is what's at stake here. Is that what you're saying? No. So. So what they're so with them getting that body cam footage, it it's going to allow the victim or the people representing the victim to uh, potentially press charges, mm -hmm. or at least you know start that conversation, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, but mm -hmm. what it's going to do is we're we're looking at the police like, oh, you didn't share your body cam footage in time, blah blah blah, and we're upset at you, cops. You didn't do this job. But the cops are going to mm -hmm. flip that conversation and say, oh, well, that's not our department. It's got to go through this mm -hmm. department, and it's their process. And so it's just it's one of these things where they're going to just deflect into uh, pointing their finger at a different department. Jesus Christ! So there's bureaucratic red tape that is further removing them from any sort of accountability. So what what are some of the other like uh, barriers that you're seeing um, to holding police accountable? Um, what what you know what are some of the the legal issues, some of the um, just the bureaucratic red tape bullshit or even just plain plain and simple corruption? What what kinds of things are are you seeing? 
oof, there, there's lots of corruption, especially in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about, when we're talking about like obstacles, right? Um, a really big obstacle that the people um, are able to, to take over and, and take charge of is the elected officials who are supporting the quote, the bad apples. Mm. Um, I think that's very important to recognize um, when someone who is in a position that we elected them there and now their behavior is accepting this corruption or, or these uh, bad ideas, whatever you want to label this, whatever you want to label it. Right. Mm -hmm. But we see them supporting it. Um, Our responsibility is to vote and, and to vote them out. Um, Mm. not saying, Hey, let's support this one person and put this one person. And that's not at all how I think about voting. Uh, I think about voting to remove the bad, the bad one out. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how I want people to start approaching local elections is, uh, you're voting to remove somebody out because this person Mm. is causing obstacles or he is causing harm and, and things that he's doing and saying. Um, so I think that's important to pay attention Um, and other obstacles, you know, after the, um, after we lost George Floyd, um, our session in Utah, they actually tried to, uh, what is a good word? They tried to restabilize qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. Um, so Utah already has qualified immunity for, um, government officials, which includes police, right? So they have that secret shield of, I can do whatever I want because I'm working for the government and I can do whatever I want. So, um, what they did was after we lost George Floyd, they tried to reinstate it for the state's level. So state, there was a state level acceptance of qualified immunity, which is really dumb. That seems really backwards, right? We just saw this unaliving that almost took up 10 minutes of somebody's time. Right. And now we're understanding like a minor recorded it all. Um, so, um, I think to think that the best corrective step step is not to concrete qualified immunity. It would be to take a step back and, and look at what qualified immunity is and what it's actually protecting and, and who is it actually benefiting. And if it's not benefiting the whole collective, then what are we using it for? Um, so things like that happened um, after 2020. So people really needed to pay attention. And fortunately, Utah paid attention and they showed up uh, to session and they mm-hmm. stopped that from getting gaining any support um, through session. So so stuff like that is very important to pay attention Um, and then, you know, of course, you know, some people don't believe that they, they, um, that they should vote. Uh, there's the quote that goes around talking about, they don't want to play with master's tools. And so they choose not to vote Mm -hmm. and you know what? Cool. Don't vote. Um, do your thing. But if you're not voting, you should be working at the poll, Mm -hmm. right? Because you should be ensuring that like in, in a sense of privilege, right. If you are privileged enough to choose whether to vote or not, then that privilege should be utilized to create a safe space. So someone more marginalized than you can go and vote. Mm. Um, and I think that that's just like another thing that we just have to keep talking about and teaching because 
Um, if you are, you know, brave in the stance of not voting, that's totally cool. But you should, you know, utilize that privilege and that stance to ensure that someone who, you know, maybe there's someone who just gained their citizenship and they would like to go and vote. And uh, knowing how Utah works with, um, you know, open carry and things of that nature, maybe they don't feel too safe going and, and you know, utilizing their vote. So people mm. should pay attention to those kind of things and participate. I think that's probably the number one thing people can do is participate. Mm. That's that's actually re- uh, really good to bring up because, you know, I, I totally resonate with that, that concept of like uh, not playing with the master's tools. Um, but I think one of the things that you mentioned there is, is just how like voting is, is, is in many ways, like, like the bare minimum on just like on what you're saying is harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're not, if, even if there's no, uh, candidates that you're like, I love this person, they're definitely going to represent all my values. It's like, okay, let's at least like have this harm reduction to, you know, get out Aaron Mendenhall, things like that. Right. Um, and so it, it's crazy to me that people can just be like, oh, voting's bullshit. And, you know, be like, okay, yeah, I understand that. And then just not do anything. They, they're just like, <laughs> yeah. cool. I'm just going to, I'm just not even going to do anything. It's like voting's literally the bare minimum. If you really think it's, it's, uh, it's useless, then I, I love the idea of going out and still helping the polls to, uh, prop up those people who want to vote and who really do value it. Um, and allowing that space to grow more and, and feel more safe. Um, and then also just maybe being more participating or participating more in you know activism and actually on the ground action and developing communities and things like that um but and i think I, participating it it makes you aware of the intersectionalities there right mm. um because if you think about if you think about a family who um is you know fighting for citizenship okay let's say that mm-hmm. there's a family that's fighting for citizenship and then one of the family members are killed by police you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So doesn't that alone make you think, Hey, well, I'm going to put my vote to support this family because like their whole table has turned. Mm-hmm. And so now like their obstacles have, has heightened in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you think, Oh, I'm not going to vote for this person or as I would be for this person, I'm going to ensure that this family has structured safety to, to be heard, whether mm-hmm. it's voting or going up to the Capitol and speaking, uh, whether, um, they need to be heard in a court case, um, or at citizenship hearings or, or anything like that. I'm going to ensure that, um, my actions are going to be supportive of, of this family of police brutality and their obstacles. Right. I just mm-hmm. think it's just, um, when you participate, it brings the awareness of intersectionality and it really heightens that how much we're all really connected. Mm. And, uh, Carl always says that, like, we are all connected. We are all related. And, and it's true. We all have a relationship to one another, whether we like it or not. Mm. Um, because when we hit ground zero, zero, um, you're my neighbor, I'm your neighbor. Yeah. And that's a relationship in itself. And so that is, that should be good enough to, to want to have safety and community, you know? Yeah. And to actually make those efforts. I think that's definitely um, a concept that is like missing from our cultural narrative right now. We like, we really don't think of, uh, or most people don't think of being related to everybody. They don't think about being interconnected to everybody. Um, you know, we have a lot of division in terms of, you know, 
politics or just ideologies or even just like physical uh, division, you know, um, you know, I'd also blame car culture in a lot of ways for for that sort of individualistic mindset and things like that. So it, it really is this like there's a cultural mindset shift that has to happen there um, where we understand that we're all interrelated, interconnected um, to be willing to show up for each other, which is exactly what you're saying. So um, I guess one thing I'd love to kind of um, ask then from that point is like, how can we start to build that that cultural shift, that that understanding that we really are interrelated? Do you think um, do you think it's possible to to uh, awaken people to that understanding, um, especially in terms of like being able to have effective conversations like about race, about intersectionality and about like all of these um, the, the issues affecting marginalized communities? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is, I think anything is possible, first of all. Um, mm. But I do feel that people are capable of coming to that conclusion and that awareness that, um, man, like the bare minimum you got to do is just participate, you know, whether you're, you know, doing something politically or not like getting to know your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and this is something mm-hmm. that I like to remind people to the, um, there's so much power to the people, right? There's literally so much power to the people that it is more terrifying for a government for you to know your neighbor. Mm. And, and, and that just speaks volumes because, uh, when we think about, Oh, who are you going to ask for sugar? I'm going to go next door and ask my neighbor for sugar. Um, and then I'm going to know about them. I'm going to learn them. I'm going to have a relationship with them. I'm going to joke with them, um, through the fence, right? I'm going to now know my neighbor. Right. And, um, that's some of the most, that's the scariest thing a government views is, oh no, they know their neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I think that that we should be understanding is like a weapon in itself. And, you know, and it's not a harmful weapon. It's just a, a powerful supportive solidarity creating of a weapon. Mm -hmm. And, um, so people, uh, good good ways in Salt Lake City to get involved or at least participate. Um, if you're not into, you know, voting and register for voting and lobbying and uh, working le- the legislative side, get to know your neighbor. Um, there's plenty of ways to get to know your neighbor. Um, if you're really into, you know, uh, if your love language is, is serving your neighbor or, or serving one another, you can uh, do outreach. Um, down at that murals, they built community boxes so people could fill the community boxes with resources so anybody could have like a free-for-all kind of thing. Nice. Um, all of those faces all have uh, garden boxes in front of them. So mm-hmm. some of the families like to go down there and plant garden and plant and garden. So if you ever see, you know, families down there participating in their spaces, in this safe communal space and, and doing planting and gardening, go and ask them about their loved one or go and ask them why they're in that space. You know what I mean? Like, it's really easy to get to know your neighbor. And, um, when we do, all we do is concrete love. And when you concrete love, that's fuel for the people. And that's what keeps people going. And I think that's why it's it's so important to remember to go and ask your neighbor for sugar because it's it's it'll literally change your life. And, mm. you know, maybe you find out you have a really shitty neighbor, but at least, you know, your neighbor. And that's so powerful in itself. Um, you can also go to the People's Garden. That's in Rose Park. 
Um, and that's such a beautiful space. Uh, Margarita Satini, she was an activist here who passed away um, after battling COVID. Yeah. Um, the police used to park in front of her house and they knew that there was a multi-generational home. And so they would just park out front, quote, to make to to wait for them to mess up. So there's that like that police forcing structure that messed with this woman who is an amazing activist. And so she now has a mural at the People's Garden and it's a really beautiful space there. Um, it's near the health department. Um, unsheltered people live near it. Um, and they also take care of this space. Um, we often see unsheltered people there doing outreach for one another or with each other. And so that's kind of, you know, beautiful to see sustainability amongst somebody, um, living in a survival mode, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? To see them still being sustainable. It, we all can be. Um, and when we start linking to each other, it's even more possible. Um, so, you know, you can do things like that. Um, if you, um, Black Lives Matter, we have a kids camp every summer. You can volunteer for the kids camp. Um, we have a high pop population of black and brown children that are adopted by white parents. Um, so if you yourself are a person of color, we would love for you to come and volunteer because we love to see ourselves in all spaces. Right. <laughs> um, so like, you can you can get involved anywhere and it's it's super it's super fun and it's super easy but like the the best gain from it all is really just gaining like community and love and that solidarity for one another and i think that that's just very important mm, definitely it it sounds like really what's needed for that entire cultural shift is a shift towards community people really don't realize how just how fucking radical it is to know and give a shit about your neighbors love and, is uh, radical love is radical like we we live in a, a, a society that cares more about individualism and greed than it does about the well-being of of our of our fellow humans and mm -hmm. uh and that the people's garden that you mentioned is just an absolutely beautiful example of people saying like fuck it we're just gonna get together and do our own thing because all we need is each other and uh and i and you didn't mention it but uh, i just learned yesterday from uh the cag meeting that that the government is trying to foreclose that that space they are trying to kick the them city off is, yeah yeah the city is trying to evict them um and i think it's exactly what you're saying that they, they are afraid of that kind of organizing they're afraid of that kind of independence and ability to meet their own needs without the state or without businesses. And that is a very radical thing. And that is like, it's almost like it's frustrating to hear that it's like getting attacked, but it's also heartening to say like, oh, that's that's dangerous to them. That's actually a threat to to the status quo. Love. It, yes. and, and it, and it make it should make you think of those those viral photos of uh, the civil rights movement of black women with flowers in their hair and they're facing mm -hmm. barrels. Mm. because that was so feared. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's super much like even when we saw in, um, when the woman, the elderly woman dropped the sunflower seeds in front of the soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. It is, that is so dangerous, but it is just nothing but love and radical to us. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's that much more powerful and I love it. 
It is. I, I, I do too. And I think that that's, you know, really the embodiment of the kindness rebellion, right? It's like, it's the idea that uh, actually giving a shit about human beings and um, building systems and individual habits that curate that um, is actually an act of rebellion. And so I love that you um, really outlined that for us. And I, uh, especially the ways that we can build community um, and just by getting to know your neighbors, being more involved in these kinds of projects and uh, and probably even just trying to, you know, set them up on, in our own spaces as well to ensure that people are just knowing how to take care of each other. Um, I think one of the things that I've been seeing a lot is just people afraid of their neighbors. Um, I'm sure you've seen that too. It's just this, this idea that like anyone could be out to get you or anyone could try to harm you or take advantage of you. Um, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you try to kind of work through that mindset with people? Cause, uh, I, I would say that more people are more afraid of, uh, what might happen than what actually will happen. Uh, first, I think a person needs to define what fear is, right? Mm. Because um, people will say, oh, fear is nothing but fear itself. Okay, but what does that really mean to you? Like, what does that, mm-hmm. what does that sum up for you? Because I think fear is just the unknown, right? You just, it's that mm. question mark of possibilities. Um, mm. But, you know, you can always flip that cup full and it's not that it's a fear, but it may, maybe it's an excitement and it's just, mm-hmm. it just feels a lot. And so it, that's why it, it's deemed fearful. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you really just need to define what fear is. And then, you know, how are you going to approach fear? Because a lot of times fear, if fear is just projection of, of you, right? Mm-hmm. If you're just projecting that you fear that you don't understand or you don't know, or you question the outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, then that's a you problem. That's not necessarily a me problem, right? Sure. It's yeah. yeah, internal, internal. So I think, I think you just have to, you know, unlearn what you're defining fear as, or at least get to know what fear is, um, mm-hmm. before fearing your neighbor, because yeah. you know what I mean? Like I, I'm a black queer single parent in the state of Utah. Um, I don't care what my neighbors think about me. I don't. Mm -hmm. And it's because I don't have room to, um, they either are going to like me or they're not going to like me, or they're just going to be regular Utahns and just be passive and Mm -hmm. know I exist, but switch lanes when necessary, you know? (laughs) So I think, I just think it's just really, you need to understand like, well, what are you questioning? Like, what are you fearing? A lot of times what I'm recognizing in Utah, a lot of what fear is, is the fear of rejection. Mm. And so, um, I think that if that's the first thought in your head about wanting to get to know your neighbor is, oh, maybe my neighbor won't like, like you, Mm -hmm. then approach that neighbor with already accepting that they don't like you. Like Mm. try it out. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. All it does is it it validates that fear that, Oh, this person doesn't like me. Okay. This person doesn't like me. Hey person, have a good day. But like you got to know your neighbor and that And you know what I mean? Like you broke Mm -hmm. that little bit of a fear barrier. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's really that, that shadow work, that internalized work of you need to, understand what it is you're fearing. Cause, um, I, some of my neighbors fear me cause I'm black. Like mm. I, like you, I get that look of, Oh no, what is she, what is she going to do? And I'm like, I'm pulling weeds. 
just existing like a regular neighbor <laughs> like there's no conspiracy current over here i'm just oh, gonna pull God. some weeds you know and like i make it very awkward for them when i see those or i start to get that feeling like okay like what do you you think that like i'm gonna have a third eyeball fall out of my ear or something like what do you <laughs> like what do you think is gonna happen so like i like to mess with people when i see them in that in that state of questioning or fear um and just let them know like hey i bleed just like you mm -hmm. um there's nothing really to fear here um you could ask me for sugar i do have sugar um so it's just that internal and i mm -hmm. think it's just how how you're going to talk about it or projected, I guess. Yeah, I think that's very profound. And, and it requires a lot of self awareness. But also like, um, I think that that's like, if anyone's listening to this conversation, wondering, like, how do I talk to my neighbors, because I'm afraid like, that's, the, I love that. I love that first step, just like understanding where that fear is coming from. Um, yeah. That's actually a huge thing I really like to talk about on, uh, on this podcast is emotional intelligence and being aware of, of uh, what emotions are cropping up when and being able to give yourself space to not just react to those emotions. And, um, and I absolutely love that because at the end of the day, like, <laughs> like really the worst case scenario, like most likely is that you're like, Hey neighbor, this is my name. I want to know your name. And they're just like, please don't talk to me. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's that, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you'll be fine. But, um, I, I love that you brought that up because we can really let those blocks get in our way and, and, uh, and stop us from making meaningful change. And I think that, um, People really underestimate the the deep value of community and how much humans really need community just to feel any sort of meaning whatsoever. Um, so I really appreciate you outlining that as a as a huge piece of um, you know kind of building this movement and and just building that care for people. I think that's also something that I kind of wanted to bring up is like uh, when we think about you know, defunding the police or, you know, really just uh, police abolition. Uh, the real key to that is going to be community, right? It's about being able to deal and mitigate with conflicts without having to call a cop who's probably just going to kill you if you're black or brown. And it's yeah. just exactly. So um, I I think it's, uh, it's great that you brought that up. And I'd love to um, kind of just continue on this vein of like how we, how communities are uh, can really be a solution to pol to uh, aggressive policing or to even just like, you know, an inflated police budget and everything like that. Um, what kinds of resources um, and developments do you think should go into community that are currently being funneled into police instead? Oh, man. Uh, the list goes on with this subject. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was actually reading through a police department in Alabama and everything that they, you know, they started to implement and change after 2020 and the death of George Floyd. Um, just seeing, a, like, even what was the other, I looked through Camden Police Departments, too. Mm -hmm. So Camden's Police Department, what they have decided is to switch to an alternate way of policing, which is actually called community policing. Mm. So, um, and it's basically the idea of... Um, not allowing a one-on-one -on -one interaction to be the finalization, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of, uh, hey, we're calling, you know, for help and not necessarily the police. Um, this person is experiencing X, Y, and Z. What kind of help do they need? 
And then that's when we have like those programs like MCOT. I love MCOT. MCOT is the mobile crisis outreach team. Mm. Um, And they basically are, their idea was formed from Cahoots and Mm -hmm. Cahoots started in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And they are nurses and uh, psychologists and social workers who respond to uh, non-lethal uh, crises, mental health crises and health crises, which mm-hmm. include like physical health and things like that. So um, to, ha- to, to change the idea of, hey, this man with a gun, he's going to go and help this lady cross the road. Help. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we we're not doing that anymore, mm. um, and we we shouldn't have to. Now it's hey, these doctors and these social workers and these nurses who spent all of this money to ensure that they went to school, and now that they're in school, they have all of these degrees and knowledge and education. We're gonna let them let the lady cross the road, mm-hmm. and we're gonna let them do it their way because their way is showing the preservation of life. Uh, their way is showing uh, more positive outcomes, mm-hmm. um, less liability. Like we're, we're going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so like programs like that are super, super crucial, um, because they, they start to, uh, limit or decrease the interaction the community has with police. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we should do as community members is often, uh, we should be supporting ideas that decrease or limit those interactions with with uh, the police. Uh, other ways that you can do that, there's an app called Eyewitness. Mm-hmm. And Eyewitness is the um, idea of when you're in an interaction with a police officer and, you know, if you don't feel safe, which you could not feel safe for many reasons, you could mm-hmm. not feel safe for uh, being black uh, being brown, being disabled, uh, having a disability that's not physical. You, you could fear for your life with interacting with a police officer for any of these reasons. And so what eyewitness would do is you would be able to basically have a lawyer speak on your behalf during this interaction, which is, you know, the idea to uh, limit that interaction with a community member and with someone who has knowledge of the law. Mm. Um, so that's like another supportive app that people should be aware of. Um, and, you know, support that as best as you can. Um, other programs are like social programs. And I know people like get triggered with the word social and they think, oh, whatever. But like literally social programs support social, emotional learning. Um, it's, uh, even, uh, trade work is supported by social programs, Mm. right? Because I know that there, there's a black woman in Salt Lake who runs a youth program to support youth um, to keep them busy after school doing uh, positive things mm-hmm. because a lot of them want to do trade work, right? Nice. So, um, and trade work is like uh, carpentry and mm-hmm. uh, I think plumbing and, and things of that nature, yeah, like exactly. everyday jobs that we need, right? And so yeah. these these group of students want to do those type of jobs. Um, so, you know, keeping those programs existing and funded or uh, even busy, if you have pro- like ideas or projects for these type of programs, reach out to them and and let them know. Like, I know mm-hmm. that um, Utah has a high population of veterans also. Mm. So if you are a veteran and you want now your new lifestyle includes um, a wheelchair and you need a ramp. Mm-hmm. OK, cool 
check out some of these social programs in your neighborhood um, that support those type of projects. And, you know, you might be able to meet the youth in your neighborhood or you might be able to meet the veteran in your neighborhood. And and that's just getting to know your neighbor all over again. But Mm -hmm. you're, you know, also helping someone who's, you know, less fortunate who now has to use like a wheelchair in this scenario. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, programs like that are super important. Um, in, I think, it's Fresno. There's the Community Justice Center. Um, that's like a really good idea that I think should belong um, down where the murals are. Mm-hmm. And so what that is, is it's like a it's a community justice restorative center. And it's basically this big giant center that anybody for anything could go there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you needed direction on what type of lawyer to get for um, a civil reason, they would have resources. Um, if you needed access to a book that your school removed because of some type of weird political support, got the book removed. And so this this would have that book for you to, to read and, and educate. And so you could get your own knowledge about the book. Um, so they have uh, different kinds of programs. They teach you how to write resumes, um, basically anything and everything um, that you could need in any moment. Right. Mm. So I think like programs like those, um, they should, they should be existing more. Um, And if it is currently existing in your neighborhood and you are aware of it existing, I think that you should, you know, take it up a, a step and not only just know that it exists, but maybe ask them how to keep it going, mm-hmm. how, how to keep that, uh, the longevity of those programs or those projects or those organizations. A lot of times, a lot of times they're just organizations of people, uh, trying to do good things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely just, you know, check in with them and, and say, Hey, so what's going to keep this going, you know, yeah. um, with the chapter, uh, we don't accept donations, but we have people who call and they'll tell us like, how do we keep it going? How do we keep it going? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, first of all, we don't really want your money, but if you have money and you're trying to put it somewhere, here are these really cool programs that have, you know, like super cool ideas. Um, even like the museum, like Mm -hmm. we have the Utah black history museum. That's like a really good place that, um, I've met really cool donors and that's why they donated to the black history museum is Mm -hmm. to keep, um, the sustainability of black history being talked about in the state, Mm -hmm. um, the longevity of it. Um, and, and basically, you know, stay in solidarity with Utah's black community also. So it's just, you can, there's so many things to do. Like I could go on for days. Like just, you just gotta, and that's why, um, people, I think when they ask, Hey, how do I get involved with the chapter? Like, that's the first thing to come out of my mouth is, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. Because I'm not going to tell you something that you're not really interested in. Like I would Mm -hmm. never want to do that to a person, but if you, um, are, you know, you, you want to put your money somewhere. Cool. We'll point you in a direction of really good ideas. If you yeah. um, really want to just go and garden or if you just want to be in the sunshine. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. We have like projects for that. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just, just depends on like where you're at because everything is connected. That's awesome. I, I love, I love just that <laughs> that laundry list of different ways that we can actually build up and help the community, um, especially like focusing on on propagating those too. And I and I also just wanted to 
kind of give kudos to the fact that like the the chapter isn't taking in those funds. It's more like, oh, you want to get involved? You want to actually help this work? Here are some on the ground organizations that you can support and work with. And we're just going to kind of coordinate and help you and kind of be uh, like a leading voice in that space. Um, and another thing that I just I really love is the the entire idea of trying to limit the um, police interaction with the communities because they, they really don't have the skills to handle most of the problems they're being tasked with. Like I, I'll often tell people that really the only thing police can do is punish and control. That's it. And when it like when it comes to especially like thinking about your cousin, Bobby, and like the mental health crisis, like having having a trained um, mental health professional deal with that situation would have, would have changed everything because they would have known how to address it. They would have known how to deescalate and not fucking kill him. And, um, and that kind of, those kinds of situations is, uh, is just important to continue propagating. So I love, thank you for sharing those resources. Um, I'll make sure that when I, uh, when I edit this, I'll, I'll put up the links and everything on the video. Cause I, I really do want people to be accessing these resources. Um, and you know, if, if you're listening to this content, it's because you're trying to figure out how we can grow, how we can grow these kinds of solutions. Cause I think more and more people are becoming aware of the fact that like, you know, the current situations, the current solutions that we have are not actually helping us. They're just maintaining power dynamics, inequality, and, um, and oppression. So thank you very, very much for sharing those. Um, and I kind of wanted to, uh, to use this to zoom out a little bit to a more macro view of kind of, um, overcoming like uh, racial hierarchies and structures of dominance overall. Like how, how do you see these these different um, uh, direct act, uh, direct action, um, building up that m that momentum for um, achieving things like like uh, racial justice and uh, and just and removing these kinds of uh, dominance hierarchies, like wealthy people and really wealthy neighborhoods tend to have a lot of access to these types of resources or aren't even like focused on like. Like they, they don't even need to worry about like, oh, we need systems of getting accessible resources because they just have the wealth to go ahead and, and deal with it. So I guess what I'm uh, trying to get at is like, how can these types of communities grow to a point where everyone actually has access to them so that we have more equality and social justice? Ooh, how do we get there? Um, well, a lot of that is is recognizing the privilege that a person has, mm. um, but it can't be from the outside of the person, right? A person has to recognize what privilege they have um, in in order to kind of share, right? Mm. And and I think that's I think that's like an obstacle here is that sometimes people are uncomfortable with sharing their privilege. Mm. Um, and I'm not, not so much utilizing their privilege because every day their privilege is being used, but like in the moments of needing to share it, mm. um, like for, for example, the, the murals space, that location right there, it's mm -hmm. right off of 900 South and mm -hmm. the mayor has made the East side accessible. So anywhere from the East side can basically hit ninth and go all the way down and, and be able to go all the way to that 300 West. Um, is that problematic? No, it's cool that the East now has full access to the West side. Is it reciprocated? Mm. No. So the West doesn't have that equal access. The East does. 
um, but we're expected to take more from the West, like their their water supply right now. Like that's one of those conversations where they want to uh, take from Rose Park's water and Mm. and share. Why Why are we taking if we're not even allowing them to have that equal accessibility across State Street? Wow. Okay. So I think, and so that's why that, that conversation of that building being a community space or a community justice center or a resource center, um, Mm -hmm. the reason why it's so crucial in that building, in that space is because of how accessible it will be from the East and from the West, because people on the East side and the West side, they will need mental health services that could be found there. Mm -hmm. Uh, people from the East and the West, they could be short on food, money, or shelter resources. And it, it just could be right there in the middle, equally accessible to both sides. So I think it's just, um, basically understanding when the, the resources are being gatekept. I think Mm. that's something to, to recognize. And then I think once you recognize, Hey, this person's not really sharing, uh, all of this resources or all of their privilege, um, then you, we need to recognize is this person in a elected position? Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Let's remove them because they're not doing their, their part. Their part yeah. was to get into this elected seat and ensure that we were all, um, being fed, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's their whole position is to make sure that we're all housed and we're all fed and we all have water. And if they're not doing that, then get rid of them. Yeah, And so I think it's just basically understanding what gatekeeping is and, and recognize when it's happening. And then uh, the same with the privilege. Hey, I recognize that, you know, you're gatekeeping resources and that's a very privileged thing to do. So now I'm going to like shift and then work around that kind of thing. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Cause, uh, and I, I did, I did kind of phrase that question really weird. Cause I, I do see what you're saying where, you know, um, a lot of these communities might that maybe sort of are the the haves or whatever they they have this this privilege and this access and these resources that they're simply not wearing, willing to share and i think uh, a lot of that can come from uh, just very simply ignorance like they might like uh, a lot of people that i would talk to i think uh realize or sort of think like oh well you know there's either plenty enough to go around or maybe they like we deserve these resources we earned it kind of thing and so that i think that's where i was kind of trying to zoom out and try to help explain to people like, no, 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 you have access to these resources because of certain hierarchies and certain structures that are like funneling it to you. And, and it's that, it's that gatekeeping that you're referring to. I think that, that's where it's kind of clicking for me is that it's actually restricting access to the people who truly need it and being willing to open up and understand that so that we can share resources um, more equitably and ensure that everybody is taken care of. I really like the idea that, um, you know, <laughs> that our our leaders should actually be focused on ensuring that everybody is housed, fed, and has clean water. Simple. I know, right? Like that should just be the bare minimum. And instead they end up uh, just, you know, doing stupid campaigns where they really just show up, smile, and wave, and and then uh, suck the dicks of banks. And so that's kind of um, – they thank you for kind of sharing that and, and expressing the ways that we can um, – sort of build that solidarity and that um, that equity there. I think it, it's going to be an uphill battle trying to convince or awaken people to that kind of need. Um, but it sounds like there's already um, like uh, there's already work being done to kind of help um, awaken people to that and sort and sort of awaken uh, change that. 
And it's that, that self, it's that, just that inner work that a lot of people do have to do. Cause a lot of people like when, when you are lobbying or when you're, you know, knocking on the door and talking about certain bills or legislation that's going to pass a -hmm. lot of people, the first words to come out of their mouth is, Oh, well, I don't have that problem, Mm -hmm. which is okay. That's fine. But imagine your neighbor does. Cause a lot Mm -hmm. of times people can't, Oh, I could never imagine me going through that. Okay. That's fine. Now let's talk about your neighbor. Your mm-hmm. neighbor is going through that exact scenario. Um, so what with the end result, are you going to be okay with knowing that you could have aided your neighbor with a simple vote mm-hmm. or with a simple uh, change of thought or, you know, just simple little things. And I think it just, it just falls back on like uh, we live in Utah and Utah is very religious. They're very mm-hmm. um, a religious state And I find it so complex that we never prioritize love thy neighbor. (laughs) Seriously. It it comes right back to the the interrelatedness and the interconnectedness. Like uh, you're, you're 100% right. Like we have this high Mormon population that pretends like, Oh, Hey, we love thy neighbor. Um, But then as soon as it's, there's like propositions or um, any sort of action that's being taken to say like, Hey, we need to actually help our neighbor. It's like, Oh, well, I'm not going through that. Or, Oh, I don't want to share, or I deserve my, these, this access that I have right now or whatever it may be. Um, But I I think uh, that's really a, an important refocus is like, Hey, love thy neighbor and realize that like by doing so, you're also loving yourself. Like you're, you're taking care of the entire environment and the interrelated structure that we're all a part of, whether we like it or not. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of interesting because, um, this kind of, this idea of like sharing resources and sort of, um, uh, like shifting these balances, it uh, it kind of brings me to another question that I wanted to talk about, which is um, which is like reparations and things like that. Do you think that that is a a viable um, means or avenue of making real change here in America? Um, for yeah. a little, I, I I had listened to this podcast with uh, Professor Kahindi Andrews, and he said that uh, true reparations from the U.S. or the U.K. would effectively like end those countries because there's really like so much wealth, like intergenerational wealth owed to uh, the black population specifically. Um, and so I, I was kind of I wanted to dive into the, that a little bit. Like, do you see that as a viable route, and uh, and could that be this this sharing in this? Um, uh, I guess the solution that we're kind of talking about. Yeah. I, I think that reparations are owed. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. also with reparations to, um, black people are very communal. And so even with the understanding that mm-hmm. black people are owed so much to where other countries could end, Black people are still not going to push for that. Mm -hmm. Um, They just want the equitable outcome Mm. Um, because reparations could look Mm. like no student loans. Uh, Reparations could look like um, no Mm. credit scores on your housing application. Uh, Reparations could look like an American Express gas card. Gas is stupid expensive. So uh, reparations could take many forms. Mm-hmm. Reparations could um, could very well exist because black people are the first people to put that money right back into our country. 
So um, mm. we and we know this because history has told us uh, statistics have showed us uh, that the black dollar is the most used dollar, which is the most spent dollar, which keeps that will of the economy going. So mm-hmm. if black people just chose not to spend any dollars, then mm-hmm. the will would not turn. Yeah. The fact that we keep spending and spinning that will is because we live here and we're community and it's communal. And we know that I think that we really do know that we could shut the whole thing down and, but that would hurt everybody. Mm. And so I think that that's just something to acknowledge that, um, it's owed respectfully to, to this group of people and they're, they're not burning down the Capitol or January sixing it for it. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's just very, I think it's something to, to heavily discuss and acknowledge. Um, mm-hmm. I see, you know, works in California of people of like those programs and, and things like that. But, um, I, I think that they're, they're very cool and I can't wait until Utah gets on board to, you know, where they're acknowledging, I mean, reparations could look like a black school. Um, Mm. reparations could be, um, anything like reparations could take form as long as we get that equitable outcome. And that's really what black people are asking for when we're discussing what reparations are. Reparations Mm. could look like free mental health for the rest of our lives. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it, like it, it could be these things and these things are, are obtainable, they're reachable and they're not as, as radical as they might sound. They're really not. They're really not radical at all. They're very general, easygoing ideas. And so that's what makes it like possible. Mm-hmm. I, I actually really like what you said about it being, it's not about like, oh, well, we like, there's this huge debt owed and we're aware of it and we just want to effectively like pay it off. And those, it's it's about gaining that social mobility about that, that access and that equal op- uh, outcome that you're talking about and that equal Uh, opportunity as well. I love the idea of just like, okay, so what are the primary expenses that are affecting these community? What, what are the the main barriers? And then instead of literally just being like, cool, that's worth $2 million. Here you go. It's more like, okay, let's, let's remove those barriers. Let's invest in those solutions. Let's actually like help these communities. And I, and it was really interesting to also hear, um, that the, like the black dollar that you're saying is, is actually, a huge stimulation for the economy because of uh, because of the that sharing that community and that just that momentum to kind of just keep growing it. Um, that's just kind of a like a beautiful reason to like actually focus on these types of solutions and ensure that that equity is being built and uh, and that we're also just trying to make amends for the intergenerational and systemic issues that have been like plaguing these communities for so so long. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah. So um, we're getting close to the end here, but uh, uh, I did want to ask kind of one final question that would um, sort of, uh, this is, you know, based on a lot of the media attention that Black Lives Matter had had um, that I just felt was very, like some inaccurate representations as well as just like what I felt like the algorithms were feeding people and things like that. I kind of wanted to just very clearly state like what are the main tenets of bl- the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, and maybe clarifying what is often misunderstood uh, by the public. The biggest misunderstanding that's by the public is they 
assign the movement to a global network. Mm. Um, the network is part of the movement, but the movement does not make the network. And I think that's something that people should, should know and understand because um, they, they love to tie the two together. Um, and then following that also, I don't want to hear a single thing about what money a global network obtained when churches obtain money the same way and probably billions more. Mm-hmm. And then nobody bats an eye. Yeah. So I'm, I often laugh that Black Lives Matter, the global network is nothing but a black owned church. And nothing I can do about it because I'm not going to go and ask the Pope for money. I'm not going to ask the LDS guy president thing. I don't know what they call the LDS guy. Um, I'm not going to ask him for any money. I'm I'm just not going to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But so that's I do think that that's those are like things that people should be aware of before they make their final judgment which they shouldn't even be doing in the first place but that uh, these are things to intake when coming to conclusions for yourself um Mm. other things that people need to understand is that the movement is to Mm. amplify the much needed correction in this country when Mm. dealing with police interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, police are more than likely to unalive a person and deem them a threat if their skin is dark. Mm-hmm. That is that is just that's a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see we see this on on many occasions. Um, even for example, uh, for Bernardo Palacios, um, after listening to the uh, the appeals in the 10th circuit court, the suspect who committed the crimes does not match Bernardo Palacio's identity. Hmm. So the police potentially killed the wrong person who they were pursuing. Um, and the, the, and we know this because in the description of the person who committed the crimes, he was considered light skinned and Bernardo Palacios is as dark as I am. So mm-hmm. he has very melan- melanated skin. And so like he is very much a person of color. And so we know that his life um, was not held to the value of his white counterpart. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just a reality. And so that's what Black Lives Matter, the movement does, is it, ampu- it amplifies um this ongoing issue that's that's only being overlooked because we can be easily distracted. Mm. Um, so I just think people need to to know that and understand that. Um, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that there is a superiority. There, like I said, Black people are are communal people. Um, black and African people are very communal people. So this is nothing to do with superiority. It's basically saying, Hey, black people are, are the most targeted and it's people with black skin. They're most targeted and they're mostly targeted by police. Police are, uh, agents uh, are harmful agents that inflict the heaviest amount of abuse on communities. And so when we, um, 
I think the movement is that realization and amplification of, of this. And so I think that's what people need to really know about it. Cause I've heard people uh, be upset with, you know, black lives matter for not uh, supporting certain cases, but that's, that's not it at all. The movement supports black liberation and a big obstacle for black liberation is police. And that's because yeah. they inflict that that life-altering, life-ending result. And that's what makes it so important to pay attention to what's happening in policing in your neighborhoods. Mm, perfect. Th- thank you so much for just kind of just stating that very clearly and plainly. Like it's, it's unfortunate that, that that I felt like it sort of needed to be stated so plainly and clearly because like pe- like just some people that I'll talk to will just misconstrue it in all these like stupid ways and try to twist it into this like really awful narrative that like honestly from like even just my perspective and my experience has never been the case. Like, pe- like uh, especially kind of what you were saying where it was like some people can misconstrue it to say like, oh, it's supremacy or like it's, it's trying to say that black lives matter more or some bullshit like that. Like it's uh, I just appreciate you really kind of laying that out. So it's very clear, like, no, the, these communities have been targeted by policing um, and it's a, it's a matter of liberation and, and helping them. So thank you for all of the work that you do and your, your, passion and your your power and your voice um i thank you so much for coming onto the podcast with me today uh i hope to keep seeing more of you and uh i'd love to keep focusing on um ways that we can build community and uh and really be sharing those those tools and those techniques because uh i really think that that is what's needed to help us uh create a better world yeah i'm down let me know cool thank you so much ray appreciate it you're welcome have fun Thank you for having me. Uh Uh-huh. And that is a wrap on episode two of the Kindness Rebellion. Thank you so much to Ray for being on this episode and giving, you know, all of our listeners the, the wisdom and the insight and the activating force to really make some real change in our communities. And remember, community is where this change starts. So let's start being active in our communities and developing it, especially in the ways that we talked about in this episode. Just talking to your neighbors, getting to know your neighbors. This is a huge deal. And uh, and please support Black Lives Matter Utah, especially if you're in Utah. And then, you know, just support Black Lives Matter in general, please. <laughs> and uh, check out BlackLivesMatterUtah.com. Um, I'm so sorry, Ray, that I got this released after the uh kids camp but um if you're watching this please 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 take a look at that uh consider even donating for future years um this is a really really good uh event for our black and brown kids uh, so they can feel safe and have uh just be building solidarity and um and if you want to volunteer you can also offer to do that too um show up to the cag meetings too let's uh let's recall mendenhall and let's really make a difference in our community thank you so much for watching please like share subscribe um let us know that you like it join the conversation all that good stuff thank you so much